and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? My name is Naomi Schaefer-Riley, and I'm a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Hey, Naomi. This is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And we are excited to be joined again, a repeat guest, by one of our colleagues, Nat Malkus. He is also a senior fellow and the deputy director of education policy at AEI where he specializes in empirical research on K-12 schooling. And he has brought with him today some of that empirical research. So welcome, Nat. I'm back. Thanks for having me. Once you go Nat, you can't go back. There you go. (laughs) So Nat, you just did this survey about something called the success sequence, which regular listeners to this program will be familiar with. But why don't you tell us a little bit about what you were asking the public? in terms of whether they support the success sequence or not, and lay out some of the results for us. And then just what is the success sequence? Yes, yes. Yeah, you know, this was part of a broader data collection that I did with Dan Cox here at AEI. We sent out a survey in August about a wide range of educational topics, a lot having to do with some COVID questions, a lot having to do with just what should be taught in schools, what shouldn't be, because you know, in education policy, we got controversy to go around. I mean, we got plenty of stuff to talk about. And one of the things that I wanted to include in here was this question about the success sequence, this progression to adulthood. And it's variously defined, but simply it says that young people who graduate from high school get a job and if they're going to have children, get married first. If they follow that success that sequence, they are much less likely to be in poverty later in life. And this was... Sounds pretty straightforward. Yeah, yeah. And it doesn't sound terribly controversial uh, to a a lot of listeners, I, I, I would like to think. And, you know, this was Ron Haskins and Bell Sawhill at Brookings Institution sort of found some of these numbers out. Really high percentages of young adults that follow this pathway are not in poverty afterwards, in the upper 90%. And we've, it's been proven by Brad Wilcox and Wendy Wang and some other folks. So the data is there. The reason that I wanted to ask about it is because I have been in rooms where folks have said, you know, this seems like something that we should actually educate high school students about, right? It makes sense to teach this if there's such a overwhelming percentage of students that follow this sequence, perhaps at a minimum, we should talk to them about the statistical results of folks that, that follow this sequence. And in those rooms, I've seen folks shouted down for their <laughs> high-handed cultural hegemony that they are trying to uh, tell other people how to live. When it comes specifically to this question, as a person who looks at education policy, my thought was, I really, I think this is interesting. There are interesting arguments for and against teaching the success sequence, whether it is actually causal or not. And and that's an interesting conversation. But when it comes down to what we should teach in schools, it seems to me very important to find out, well, what does the public think about these arguments? And so that's why I wanted to make sure that we could include this in our national sample. We have have 2,600 plus respondents and a nationally representative set of parents in the sample. So we could get a really good sense, not only overall, but by some subgroups of how folks either favor or oppose teaching the success sequence in schools. So these are all parents of of kids who are in uh, either a public or private school system right now. Is that right? 
Not not all. We have both sets. So we have an overall sample that's just representative of American adults. That's the big sample. We had uh, 2,600 plus. And then we had almost a thousand parents who are currently parents of school aged children. And that way we can see if parents opinions sort of differ from that of the general public precisely because, well, they'll be the ones sending their kids to schools. Got it. And and part of the reason that you're asking this is that, as you just alluded to, there are people who feel like, well, maybe we shouldn't be teaching this data because you're right, it's not necessarily causal. And what if you're teaching a classroom of kids whose parents or whose caregivers did not follow that sequence? I think some people are concerned that that might demoralize kids or make them feel bad or make their caregivers or parents feel somehow that they did something wrong, right? So there's that perception out there. And so there are those people who choose to say, well, we shouldn't teach it at all. So what is your, what did your results, what did your survey data say to you, in fact, about that theory? Yeah, I mean, I I think to just kind of frame this up from expectations, first of all, I've heard a couple of theories about who might be particularly opposed to teaching this in schools. And some are the folks that are sort of on the other side of the success sequence. They didn't graduate from high school or they didn't get a job right away or have had struggles with employment or had children out of wedlock. And so these sort of violate the success sequence and perhaps the the values embedded in it. And so folks think, well, that will be something that's objectionable. And then there are other folks who just say, well, that's just sort of a conservative take. And so liberal folks would be more opposed to that. And so I wanted to plumb those depths. When I looked across just a number of different subgroups, so I looked at all adults and parents, men versus women, looked across the generations, looked by poverty, looked by race, looked by a a couple of other things. You know, the broad scope was overwhelmingly in support. So, you know, all Americans are in support of the success sequence around 77% of the time. Parents are, are right there with them. There are some variations across these groups, but if you want me to put it short and sweet, Even the most opposed group that I looked at across all comparisons were in support of teaching the success sequence by a two to one margin over those who would be opposed. And how did it break down? So, I mean, when you think about the the people who we're talking about might be opposed to it, how did it break down, for instance, by income level or by race? You know, were people who were less likely to have followed the sequence themselves? Were those people less likely to support teaching it or did they take from their own experience maybe a lesson about what they wanted to pass on to their kids? Yeah, I mean, there's there's a lot of questions about, you know, why they thought what they thought that I can't answer. But some of the patterns that we see are interesting by income. There are some differences, but it's not smooth across income groups. So there's not huge differences there, although the support looks to be a little higher on average among higher income groups. When you look at it by race, there is really no major statistical difference between white and Hispanic adults, but black adults do have a higher rate of opposition. Their net opposition was you know, 29%. So not a huge number, but 
nonetheless, more opposition than white or, or Hispanic. Uh, Wait, but, what, but just say, but say the positive, say the affirmative for that for black adults. So for black adults, the positive uh, support was 68 percent. Twenty nine percent of black adults were strongly supportive of teaching the success sequence and 39 percent were somewhat. And if you want to compare that to whites, that was 80 percent and 43 percent were strongly in favor, which was much larger than the 29 percent of African-Americans. But overall, the net numbers were 80 percent versus 68 percent. Right. And I, I wonder I wonder when people hear teaching the success sequence what they hear in that, because it is important to note that the data shows that amongst, I think, adults, if you follow the success sequence, it's a 98% likelihood of avoiding poverty. If it's millennials, it's 97%. So they're high, but it's not 100%, meaning that there's no guarantee. There is no one pathway. You, you always have to acknowledge that there are kids of single parents who, who because of their parents' efforts, have thrived and done great things. And there's also kids of married two-parent households who lead really screwed up lives, right? So you, ha- you have to acknowledge that. But the, the data is overwhelming. So I'm wondering when people hear teaching is, for the people that are opposed, do you think they're opposed to the idea of teaching it in a prescriptive fashion, meaning this is how you should lead your life, or a descriptive fashion, which just says, look, you're ultimately going to make decisions for your own life. But we think it's incumbent upon us to share with you the different series of life decisions and what the likely rewards or consequences are. And so one of those is the success sequence. And then you could say, when if you choose to have a child before marriage or child and no marriage, here's your likelihood to enter poverty. What do you think about it's It's all in how it's framed and what is actually taught. You know what I mean? I, I do know what you mean. And I think that depending on how the idea of teaching this is actually framed, is going to lead you into very different discussions. I think a lot of those folks that I have heard object pretty vociferously to teaching this are primarily driven by the idea that we're going to give some should statements about this. You should do this because I believe it is the right way to live. That sort of prescriptive take on the success sequence. You know, Bell Sawhill, again, one of the people who originally sort of uncovered this data has has retorted, well, that's a reasonable argument to make. But anything with this high odds of avoiding poverty is probably something that we should at least just inform kids about. We should inform kids about the premium for going to college, because for those that do go to college, they're going to get a pretty significant earnings premium. And by the way, we do that all the time in education. All the time. I mean, it's, oh, and it's not just and it's not just with, you know, with things related to poverty. I mean, the health classes that we offer kids, you know, these are the I'm going to present to you what the risks are of drunk driving or the, you know, the dangers of, you know, vaping or all of these things. And I, you know, I mean, I'm not sure that there is this distinction between the the prescriptive and descriptive that you're talking about as much, Ian. Like, I mean, I'm perfectly happy to frame it that way, but it also seems to me that there are plenty of ways in which we are offering prescriptive information to kids. And maybe this is one kind of prescription that we should be offering them. I mean, if not, then we should get out of the prescriptive business entirely, perhaps. Yep. 
Yeah, you're certainly going to run into a different set of opposition. And I don't think we run into that sets of opposition with college going because it just doesn't have sort of the conservative cultural trappings that the success sequence does. But you could certainly not separate arguments such as, well, we should teach kids to go to college because it is an equitable result for all students currently. That is not equitable across rich or poor people, across majority or minority groups, across groups who have higher educated parents or not. Nonetheless, that's a non-controversial statement. Here we have on those same sort of equity grounds arguments that, well, this is a you know, sort of conservative cultural argument for how people should live, and thus it garners a lot more opposition than it otherwise would. There was just a story out of uh, Boston University recently that even suggesting to a woman that she might want to think about having children could be a Title IX violation. So it's easy, it's easy to see how these kinds of ideas, if they are taken as prescriptive, could definitely raise the hackles of people. But let me ask you, were you surprised by how overwhelming the support seemed to be for teaching the success sequence? And what do you think the message should be to school leaders or school boards about this? Yeah, was I surprised? I mean, I wasn't surprised that it had some net favorability. I was a little surprised by how strong it appeared to be. And, you know, a comparison is sort of useful here, right? The support for teaching the success sequence was pretty comparable to the people in the exact same survey who said that we should teach students in public schools that slavery was the cause of the Civil War. That seems like not a very controversial statement to me. At all. And I'm not surprised that that had high marks. The idea that the success sequence had sort of comparable support puts it in a few items, especially in today's sort of polarized times where you have something that really has such unanimous support. You know, the other thing that I'd put out there is one thing that the data sort of allowed us to pull out, because we have a lot of background information on the respondents, is actually how well, the uh, respondents aligned to the success sequence. Now, that does not mean that for every respondent, we said, after you graduate high school and get a job and then get married before having children, if you had them. But we could tell who did and did not have a high school degree. So some of those folks didn't follow the success sequence. We could also tell at least what portion of parents were definitely unmarried. And also whether people were currently working or not. So these are people that I sort of call non-adherence to the success sequence versus adherence. And I thought we'd see much more opposition in those groups. Indeed, when we look at them, there is marginally more opposition, more than any other group for married and unmarried parents. However, the magnitudes were fairly small. So even the folks that are sort of on the other side of the, the should statements that may be implied by the success sequence, are pretty overwhelmingly in support of it, again, by a ratio of two to one at the lowest margin. I mean, it does seem that it's the the first two elements, college or or education and work, are things that we in K-12 promote all the time. We've got college and career. It's really the, the third element, which is marriage, right? And what I've experienced is that there is a discomfort of school leaders who, especially in low-income minority communities, who may have a predominantly white female, relatively young 
teaching population, and they don't want to put them in a position where they're talking to young students about these decisions. You know, are they imposing middle class values? Are they somehow, you know, are they somehow denigrating the families that are that these kids coming from, and Frank, and by the way, not all kids in these communities, but there's a perception that that's the case. So if that's if that's a situation that a school leader is looking at, right? Like, what would you say to that person? Let me just follow up on Naomi's question. Like, they're dealing with a real issue where they feel that they don't want to put their teachers in this situation. Yeah, I mean, I'll give you one point. It's tough to teach kids how to think statistically. And usually when we say, well, here's some statistics about, for instance, two paths to adulthood or one path that leads overwhelmingly to the avoidance of poverty, it's easy to confuse that a sort of statistical set pattern with a bunch of normative patterns. Our schools need to be good at that. They need to be able to teach students, look, there are exceptions to these patterns, just because one has a much higher percentage of achieving some outcome than another does not mean that you can't overcome these odds or that your agency has no importance. But what it does mean is that if done well, we can teach kids that different paths do have different likelihoods of different outcomes and that we don't have to reduce this to a do what I say because I think it's right. And that's the reason you should follow this sequence. I think done well, we could teach kids both that there's paths to adulthood that more assuredly lead to middle class or better outcomes. And teach children to understand that these aren't iron laws that should control every aspect of their future lives. So really, we should, we should be teaching the success sequence as part of math class and statistics classes rather than health class. By the way, that's a, that is an approach I am taking. It, it prob- <laughs> prob- prob- no, seriously, probabilities and statistics. It, it's, it's actually framing that first to mm-hmm. understand the relationship between action and outcome and what possible outcomes can be. It's one way, some people don't like that approach because you're actually taking out the sort of moral argument behind the success sequence, but it's a way to deliver the information in a way that doesn't, you know, over-moralize. Mm-hmm. There is a danger here, and I think it's important to, to name it and be able to discuss it, and that is that our best intentions, when we say, let's add this to the curriculum, can often be in practice somewhat distant from what they are intended. You can see this in any number of potentially value-laden concepts that we want to teach in high school, that they actually get executed in ways that we don't want them to be. And that could indeed marginalize some kids. And we see sort of these hopefully egregious examples crop up on Twitter on all kinds of topics that make us think, oh, well, maybe we shouldn't do that. I think the important thing to distinguish there is if this is something that is worth teaching, then it's important to put effort into making sure that it is communicated clearly and well such that it forearms kids on their transition to adulthood to make better decisions and to understand the implications of the things that they may choose in the short run because of the ramifications they may have in the long run. So this would be the same situation if you're talking to a student, not just about finishing high school, but about going to college or at least getting a job that is going to secure something for their their future. 
I don't think we should make those value laden. And so there is an important part in the execution to make sure that the things that are at least value adjacent have a lot of support. One of the things that I think is interesting from these survey results is just how overwhelming that support is. No, I, I think that 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 makes a lot of sense. And it, it's also, of course, you know, depends on the kind of school you're talking about. I mean, if parents are sending their child to a particular school and expecting a certain kind of character education, or if a community has even more widespread support for this than another community, you know, there's there's going to be, you know, it's going to be okay to teach it in maybe a slightly different way. But, you know, obviously, you know, we we can't set national education policy on the success sequence just just yet, or maybe we don't want to. But it seems like the 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 survey, the kind of surveys here could be done also on a very local level to find out what people in a particular community think about it. And then the teaching of the success sequence, if there is support for it, could be done according to those guidelines. I think that's right. I think that certainly these things vary from place to place. And when you implement them, you know, you need to do the spade work ahead of charges that may indeed draw sort of public opposition. The sort of overwhelming support that we saw in, in this survey, even if you have local variation, for the most part, it's not going to even get close to 50-50. So I think that there's fertile ground for folks who are arguing that this could be useful for students to understand before they approach adulthood. All right. Well, those are all the questions that we have for our repeat guest, Nat. We'll have him back a third time at some point, but we really appreciate you joining us today and sharing this new research with us. You can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Nat, thank you. Thank you. Glad to be here.